Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Seattle music lovers are in mourning. The frontman for the band they look to as the leading light of the city's rock scene has died a tragically early and unnatural death. Lovers of his band flag the heartbreaking event as a death knell for the movement as a whole. The day grunge died. But it's March 1990, not April 94. And it isn't Kurt Cobain, it's Andrew Wood. Just 24 at the time of his death, Wood had spent the lion's share of the 80s as the singer for the influential Malfunction, a band out of Bainbridge Island, just across the bay from Seattle. But in 1988, he formed Mother Love Bone with ex-members of the equally seminal Seattle band Green River, including Jeff Ament and Stone Gossard. Wood was seen by followers of Seattle music as the most natural-born rock star to come out of the area since Jimi Hendrix. His flamboyance and showmanship combined with his powerhouse voice to form the perfect rock and roll storm. Mother Lovebone blended 70s hard rock and glam influences with the in-your-face attack of punk and metal in a sound big and brash enough to qualify the band as arena-ready rock gods in the making, but urgent and visceral enough to make the kids in the local clubs lose their minds. Duff McKagan of Guns N' Roses was still embedded in the Seattle music scene at the time. In Malfunction, you know, like, I saw them more than a few times play to like three people, and I was one of the three people. And Andy Wood would be in, you know, with his bass, singing, and he'd say, oh, you out on the left side, I want to hear a hell. And there'd be like the janitor, hell, you know. Oh, you on the right side, hell yeah, you know. And there'd be like me on the other side. So he really had these visions, humorous visions of grandeur. And he got himself a band and got himself the songs to really make that happen. KISW DJ Kathy Faulkner. You know, there's a quote that Mike McCready did in the PJ20 movie where he talked about the day that Mother Lovebone was at, I think it was the Central Tavern. And there were like, you know, eight people in the room, but Andy was up on stage as if it was Madison Square Garden. <laughs> like, ah, thank you, Seattle. <laughs> he was 
to his core and every cell of his being destined to be the iconic rock star. And we knew it. And the music was so unique. Rocket editor and writer Charles Cross. He was very effusive and a very warm guy, just a joy to be around, frankly. And he seemed like a star. He acted like a star. He wore white makeup. He stood out. Label executive Michael Goldstone. You know, he wanted to be Mark Boland. He wanted to be Freddie. He wanted to be Elton. He wanted to be as glamorous and bigger than life as he could be. And when he played those small shows, he pretended like there was a balcony and an audience and he was playing an auditorium and he would speak to the audience as if he was in an arena. And that was kind of part of his thing. And if Seattle was the anti-LA, he was the anti-rock star, rock star. And you noticed it right away. The stars seemed to be aligning just right for Mother Love Bone when they became one of the first bands from the scene to score a major label deal. They recorded their debut album, Apple, at the end of 1989 at Seattle's legendary London Bridge Studios and waited for their moment, which seemed to be just around the corner. Photographer Karen Mason Blair. We all thought Mother Love Bone was going to be the number one band, the quickest band out of Seattle. They were so charismatic. You left elevated every time you ever saw Mother Love Bone, or even just being in the presence of Andrew, for that matter, but it was transcendent. Record executive Michael Goldstone signed the band to Polygram. And Mother Love Bone was going to be, you know, everybody told me this is going to be your alternative to Guns N' Roses, and it's going to be a massive band. Mother Love Bone's moment would never come. On March 19, 1990, Wood died of a heroin overdose. He was the scene's first untimely rock star casualty, but he wouldn't be the last. Mother Love Bone was over, and Seattle's brightest hope was gone. It still moves me to this day. I mean, they had this giant uh, memorial for him at the Paramount. It's like the saddest day, and and uh, I mean, and you're missing Andrew. I mean, literally, Andrew Wood was such a light that when like when he died, like everything dimmed. Seattle DJ Kathy Fennessy. When he passed away, I don't think there was really anybody to pick up that mantle of acting like a rock star and just inhabiting a really colorful persona the way he did. The narrative, which was unavoidable, is this is a band that was on their way. Like, what horrible timing. This guy wanted to be a rock star. A major label signed them. He was on his way, and then that was the end of that. Skinyard member and CZ Records owner Daniel House. The thing about Andrew Wood was that he was so universally beloved by everybody who knew him. He was a genuine person. He was a genuinely sweet person. One thing that people don't always talk about, he was freaking hilarious. He was always making jokes and he just kind of had a lightness about him and a, a, a lightness of spirit. So it really, it, it really felt, felt like a tragedy when he died. And it was a tragedy. When Andrew Wood passed, that I think was pivotal in our community. When our innocence changed, it was a kick in the gut when uh, they had the major label release. It was ready and everything stopped. That was a hard day. There are a number of days that I've heard cited as the day the music died in Seattle. But there was no day in Seattle history where it felt like the rails were going off because of his death. And, you know, I, I just can't say enough what a wonderful guy he was to be around. And, and he was a star. Unfortunately, he dies way too young, but in my mind, he dies a star. 
his unexpected, very, very early and young death was fucking brutal. Um, so that was that. It was quite a, a loss for so many people. You know, it was incredibly paralyzing and traumatizing in some ways. I mean, I'd gotten a call in the middle of the night. You know, the record was about a month away from coming out. I was at South by Southwest. Everybody was buzzy about the record. I had to sort of walk around like a zombie for two days and then flew and, and met everybody um, in Seattle. I miss him every day. You are listening to Breaking Waves, Seattle. The story of the scene that defined rock in the 90s. Long before Nirvana set off the Big Bang that made Seattle the hottest musical property in America with Smells Like Teen Spirit, Mother Lovebone had seemed like the surest shot to take the city's rock scene nationwide. But Wood's role in the evolution of grunge really began with a record that a high percentage of purists regard as the movement's first real rallying cry. In 1986, Wood's pre-Mother Love Bone band, Malfunction, was one of a half dozen acts featured on Deep Six, the flagship released by Seattle indie label CZ Records. They shared that sonic space with the U-Men, Skin Yard, Green River, The Melvins, and Soundgarden. Soundgarden guitarist Kim Thile. That album was so important because that one defined that scene and that community this thing that was unique to Seattle. In Seattle, apparently, they're, they're kind of <laughs> melding their metal, classic rock, um, and punk rock all together. The other important thing about Deep Six was the fact that it informed the brand that would go on to be Sub Pop, ultimately culminating in the success of bands like Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Us and Alice in Chains. So I think Deep Six is really that document, both geographically and, uh, I guess, temporally. That's where we're at at that time, certainly. Charles Cross. So Deep Six really kind of started it. A lot of people think that Sub Pop had the first volley. Deep Six was an amazingly influential album in Seattle. And, you know, if people are going to go back and say, what is the first sort of recorded slice of grunge, uh, Deep Six has to kind of get that credit. Candlebox singer Kevin Martin. Well, that was just the start of everything. You know, you can make records like this that sound this fucking good and this cool. Look, I was a teenager when that came out. So I remember going into Luna, which was a shoe store on Broadway that used to have um, concerts in it. And, you know, a lot of those musicians that were on the Deep Six were at a lot of those shows or playing those shows in Luna. So I remember, you know, having my mind blown a little bit that I could go in there and see Mark Arm play a show in a tiny little shoe store or Andy Wood or, you know, any of these other musicians that, that had been involved in that collaborative effort. CZ Records was started by Chris Hansick and Tina Cassell. He had just started a studio and him and his girlfriend had this idea of starting a record label and they were kind of digging a lot of what was going on in the scene. I do know that initially it was five bands and I actually kind of went to the mat to talk Chris into adding human to the record. Uh, initially he didn't want to. 
back then, they were the only band that had any sort of notoriety and they were kind of the biggest band in the Seattle scene at that time. But, you know, I think initially Chris probably sold like, you know, 200 records and probably 180 of them were locally. Seattle was not a city that people really sought music from, you know, if you were living in Virginia or Iowa or New York or Boston, like Seattle was just completely off the map. At the time of its release, Deep Six barely made a dent. Years later, after grunge became big coin, Soundgarden's label, A&M, was all over its reissue. But the sound Deep Six documented had been brewing in the Pacific Northwest for a while, even though this was the first appearance on record for most of the bands involved. In the late 70s and early 80s, punk, metal, and power pop were all part of the musical mix on the local scene. Hart had become hometown heroes by grabbing the brass ring on a national stage. But the sound coming out of the Seattle streets was scrappier and more explosive. When the 80s started, the Heats were a band whose mix of rock, new wave, and power pop helped make them the next big thing for a hot minute. Promoter and former Heats manager Jeff Trisler. They were uh, playing locally. They had an album out, an independent record. It, I think it sold maybe 14, 15,000 copies. You know, they, they got stuck with the tag soon-to-be-famous rock band from a, a, a local commercial that they did. So they suffered from uh, too much expectation, I guess, is the best way to characterize it. But they were, that doesn't make the music any less great to listen to today. Debbie Lippitz of Epic Records. They were kind of power pop, fun. Um, my label wanted to sign them. My label sent people up from A&R people from L.A. To, to try and sign them. And maybe there was a little bit of hype behind it. Who knows? But for all the Heat's momentum, their fortunes fizzled. Meanwhile, the musicians who had revolutionized rock in the 90s were still just teenagers. And plenty of them were bitten by the punk bug. It wasn't long before a tiny but potent ground-level punk scene developed. It wasn't very big. Maybe... 80 people in all of Seattle. It was a great, small scene that started to grow. Like guys like Stone and Andy Wood, Mike McCready, you know, like the guys who became Pearl Jam and Mother Love Bone and, and Chris Cornell that became Soundgarden. Kim Thale was around, you know, starting in around 82, I think. Those guys started to show up. There was one major roadblock for the city's bumper crop of young punk bands. There were no clubs where they could play. You would rent halls, like union halls uh, in Seattle. You could kind of con your way into renting these union halls or VFW halls. They didn't know what punk rock was. You could say you were having like a teen dance. Uh, you'd have to hire like an off-duty cop, and that was it. So you could throw a gig if you knew somebody had a PA. You could throw a gig for 150 bucks and you know charge $2 at the door, and you'd make your money back. And it was really more about supporting the scene. The Metropolis opened sometime in, I think, 83. That was all ages. And that was killer. That really saved the scene, I think, for a while there. But other than that, it was people throwing gigs. You know, we snuck into 21 and over clubs. You did what you, you had to do to go see the bands that you loved. Bands would share rehearsal places and gear and, and riffs and everything. And, uh, you know, more bands started to come to Seattle to play. This show box opened in 1980, reopened, and we started getting like national and international acts. You could go see the, the police and the jam at the Paramount for a dollar. 
One of the most important bands to emerge from the early Seattle punk scene was the Fastbacks. Fronted by singer and bassist Kim Warnick, they cooked up an irresistible collusion of power pop hooks and punk abandon. I started playing drums in the Fastbacks. This is about 1979 into 1980. Pre-1980, the Seattle scene, like the bands that were playing around, had a lot of that kind of pop sensibility, that hard edge, like Buzzcocks or, I don't know, Badfinger influence. And then it kind of turned, you know, when hardcore came. It went from that pop Buzzcocks vibrators thing to kind of a more hardcore one, two, three, four type of thing. When hardcore came in, because the Fastbacks were OG by that point, they had respect. They were one of the, the bands that helped like really form the scene and hold it together in the early days. From the seeds of the city's early 80s punk scene evolving out of the unfortunately named Farts came a sludgier, slower sound that pointed a way forward. Ten Minute Warning formed in 1982 and at various points included Duff McKagan, future Skinyard member Daniel House, guitar innovator Paul Soldier, and Greg Gilmore, later of Mother Love Bone. They were kind of a band that was the bridge between punk rock and Green River. It's heavy and it's thick, it's slower, kind of got that swagger. It is that combination of kind of hard rock and punk and it was more textured, you know, it was more heavy. It wasn't necessarily balls to the wall at all times. And there was kind of a little bit of a psychedelic element as well, which, which is a quality that I think often bands in the whole Seattle scene, people don't talk that much about the fact that various bands in that scene also had a psychedelic quality as well. We slowed things down, that's for sure. We were trying to go opposite of what everything else was doing. I was the drummer at first, and we were still fast. And when we got Greg Gilmore in, he came over from The Living, and he was more of a Bill Bruford type of drummer, like King Crimson, you know, like this, wow, we can do anything now. You know, we can go any direction we want with this great drummer. And we ended up like just getting heavy, and not fast heavy, but you know, slowing tempos down. And that was not being done at that point. Really, there was nobody in Seattle at that time that was really doing what 10 Minute Warning was doing. But really in 83 was where they probably had their most local prominence and into 84. One of our biggest fans back then was Stone Gossard, who's been quoted as saying, you know, had it not been for Paul Soldier, he may not have ever ended up pursuing being in a band. Uh, Jeff Ament was a regular fan. Mark Arm was a huge fan. So I actually think that saying really that the beginning of that whole scene kind of starts with, with 10 Minute Warning. You know, a lot of people basically say well, that was kind of the first quote unquote grunge band. If you put 10 Minute Warning as the first grunge band, sure, I wouldn't argue with it. I haven't really thought of it as such, but we were the first band to slow things down, add a second guitar and venture into uncharted territory that wasn't necessarily punk rock. The sound that was starting to stir in Seattle was equally indebted to hardcore punk, 70s hard rock, and early metal. These were kids who grew up on the stoner doom riffs of Black Sabbath and the pachyderm stomp of Led Zeppelin. But they got just as much of a jolt from their own generation. 
a lot of the punk bands that were in Seattle that didn't really have national reputations, like some of the bands that Duff McKagan was in, you know, Farts and all these, and uh, some of those players either moved in a grunge direction or a metal direction. I got the impression there was always a lot of sort of bleed through between punk and metal in Seattle. I think that's one of the things that distinguishes this city is you could like the Ramones and you could like ACDC and you could like Kiss and you could like the Sex Pistols. And there's just nothing unusual about that. Like, it's hard for people to talk about early Mudhoney without talking about the Stooges. I'm sure a lot of people were listening to the Stooges and MC5 and just, you know, putting their own twist on that kind of sound. Everybody had access to AOR FM radio and grew up listening to Kiss and Zeppelin and Nugent and Cheap Trick and Black Sabbath and Foghat and but also you know Sticks and Ario Speedwagon but and then I happened to start learning how to play guitar when I was 15 16 which would have been 75 76 and then punk rock came out so I'm learning my instrument and here come the Sex Pistols and the Ramones and it was a stripped down, simpler, more aggressive and often wittier version of the music I was growing up with. And I could learn to play it on my guitar. And of course, the DC movement was hugely influential on what was going on in Seattle. Bad Brains, I remember seeing Bad Brains t-shirts, you know, at every show I went to in Seattle. Uh, saw a lot of Germs t-shirts, um, you know, Exploited. I'm sure it had everything to do with that kind of fuck you attitude that was going on with grunge. Really, Nirvana, in my opinion, and maybe even, you know, well, of course, Green River. Those were the two bands who had the real punk rock attitude. 1077 The End, KNDDDJ, Marco Collins. You could directly connect Chris Cornell's vocals with Robert Plant's. You could hear a lot of those influences, but they were updated. They were kind of a fuck you mask on those influences not that those influences weren't fuck you already (laughs) but i mean to me those bands just put a new spin on it and you can directly hear the influences i mean kurt was as influenced by old punk rock as he was old pop music and chris cornell definitely was into a lot of the old metal Soundgarden in the early days was even harder than they ended up being when they blew up. Seattle was really a mishmash of metal and punk. There were a lot of bands who were inspired or influenced by what Seattle radio was. And Seattle radio in that day, you know, was really dominated by a station called KSW. This is FM 100 KISW which was hard rock. So that was Led Zeppelin. That was ACDC. There was a image of Kurt Cobain at some point when he was a 16-year-old kid wearing a KSW t-shirt. Everybody grew up being exposed to that kind of music. That was it. The sad part about the way Seattle music history has landed in the way people perceive it is they think it's one style and that people kind of got together in a meeting in a cabal and said, hey, uh, Lane Staley, uh, hey, Kurt Cobain, hey, Chris Cornell, let's all do this one thing. And they never did that. And of course, there was no cabal. But the spirit running through the Seattle bands that emerged in the 80s went back even further. You can trace it through the ultimate Seattle guitar hero, Jimi Hendrix, all the way back to early 1960s garage rock trailblazers like the Whalers and the Sonics from Tacoma and the Kingsmen from a little further south in Portland. 
They all came blasting out of the region with a raw, primal roar that sounded sleazy, untamable, and downright dangerous. Everything rock and roll ought to be. The, if you want to call godfathers of the Seattle punk grunge sound, are a band from the 60s called the Sonics. They themselves were influenced by a band prior to that with the unfortunate name of the Whalers, forever to be confused with Bob Marley's band. But the Sonics put out a number of singles, The Witch, Psycho, a cover of Richard Berry, who wrote Louie Louie's Have Love Will Travel. All of these songs now are used on commercials. But in the 60s, the Sonics got very little love. They were successful regionally, but they never had a breakthrough hit. But every single Seattle musician had Sonics music in their collection. And that includes Kurt Cobain, that includes Chris Cornell, uh, includes Mark Arm. And in any discussion I ever had with any of these musicians, often the Sonics came up. And if you listen to Psycho, if you listen to The Witch, the distortion, the wailing guitars, the kind of balls out screaming, that I think really greatly inspired all the bands that later became famous. Easy Street Records proprietor Matt Vaughn. You then, of course, have the Sonics essentially becoming what we would now call the godfathers of punk rock. Mudhoney derives a lot of their sound from that another 15, 20 years later. So that chain just keeps on going. And the idea of Pearl Jam and Mother Love Bone and Soundgarden and Screaming Trees and Alice in Chains, they all knew who the Sonics were. They all knew where Mudhoney was getting their sound and it was raucous and it was a little out of control. The Sonics were a huge deal. In fact, one could say that the Sonics are the grandfathers of grunge. I don't know if they like hearing that, but they were miking things so that everything was distorted on purpose in the fucking 60s. <laughs> you know, I mean, the Sonics were insane. For all his associations with the Woodstock generation, Seattle's most famous son, Jimi Hendrix, was something of a grunge godfather himself, having raised more of an unholy racket with his axe than anybody before him. You know, Mike McCready of Pearl Jam, if you asked him, or in fact, if you asked any musician in Seattle, anyone, who's the greatest Northwest musician of all time, or who's the greatest musician, Jimmy's gonna win that poll every time. Some of Jimmy's guitar playing greatly influenced, I think, uh, Cobain. I, I, I absolutely think it influenced uh, Kim Thiel of Soundgarden. Mother Love Bone has got a bit more of a Hendrix vibe. People didn't talk about Hendrix as much in the 80s as an influence, but now we have a number of bands that are more embracing that. You know, we have a band called the Black Tones. It happens to be a, a black band, but they're a great upcoming band. And they're like, we are Hendrix. And we have a, another guy named Aaron Jones, and he'd be happy to say he's mixing Hendrix and Nirvana. Musician Aaron Jones. You know, I'm also from the neighborhood that, that bred Jimi Hendrix. Jimi was born and bred here too. And so, you know, it was really hard not to have you know Jimmy's influence on me and, and coming from the black music scene in Seattle and Blacktone singer Eva Walker. 
at one point I thought of Jimi Hendrix reincarnated and then I was like okay I learned later every guitar player thinks they're Jimi Hendrix reincarnated I'm not that's fine okay someone told me black people don't play guitar and then when I saw Jimi Hendrix I was like black people do play guitar <laughs> and so I wanted to be just like him In the early 1980s, the Melvins started slinging huge, dirty slabs of rock around Montesano, Washington, about 100 miles south of Seattle, doing as much to pave the way for grunge as anybody. DJ Mark Iverson. When the Melvins came through, their sound was was huge. I mean, I don't like to use the word grunge because it just feels so cliche, but they definitely helped define the sound that Seattle came to be known for. When Breaking Waves returns, the pioneers of the grunge scene turn isolation into opportunity and emerge from the basement with a whole new sound. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What the world came to call grunge came about when bands like Green River, Mudhoney, and Skinyard filtered all their musical inspirations through what they were living and breathing every day in and around Seattle. It rains a lot here. That's well-known, well-documented, old joke. But what would happen, you would go into basements or garages and rock, and you would probably rehearse more than maybe if you're a band in Phoenix or L.A. or Miami. And I really think the dampness on the strings, I'm being totally serious, like your guitars and your drums were damp. Strings were damp. And you got this sound, and, and we didn't know how to tune to like a a440 nobody had a tuner so you would just tune to each other you know and maybe that was lower it sounded better lower sounded heavier sounded cooler i don't know whether it was the weather or whether it was the fact that this was a big party town alcohol drugs but the music just dominated everything and the moody music too you know, I'm looking out right now and I'm seeing these dark clouds and big bright clouds come across. And that's nine months out of the year here. So it feels like in Seattle, the music had to be the soundtrack of the area, of the weather, of the darkness. I think probably there was a higher per capita consumption of beer in Seattle. And I think there was a higher per capita you know, membership in bands. And I think those are both directly involved with the weather and the overcast. And also probably on some level, 
being subjected to gray all the time is sort of depressing. And so, you know, one other common aspect to a lot of the music you hear out of Seattle is there's a darkness to it. When I think of Seattle musicians or the Seattle music scene or the Northwest music scene in Seattle, I think of a community that likes being hidden off the beaten path, liking popular culture, but irreverent enough to carve their own path. You know, Seattle's not a very, it's not an easy city to get to. It's a bit of a struggle if you're a young, young musician trying to make a name for yourself. So I think that breeds greatness. You know, I think when you seclude art, that seclusion can create a certain, a certain sense of greatness and a certain sense of humility at the same time. So I think that that's why you had these bands But the main thing is that Seattle was isolated. So the idea of a band being able to succeed if you were a regional live band and make money and have an audience, that didn't exist. Bands just couldn't make any money. So the capacity to play live and be successful was kind of taken away from people in that era. So my belief is that many of these bands said, well, I'll go for broke. I'll make a record. That's the one thing that that sort of made Seattle special is these people made records. So you're talking about the U-Men, you got the Melvins, you got these these bands that are making almost no money from playing gigs, but they put a record out. They also don't make any money from putting a record out, but they still put records out. In a way, that's what what made Seattle happen. So it's kind of a counterintuitive argument The reason the Seattle music scene became so good was because the Seattle music scene was so bad. Hammerbox singer Carrie Ockrey. So Seattle was isolated. You had to create your own fun. You can do whatever you want because nobody is looking, nor do you think anybody's going to be looking. There's that that as well. Like there's no thought like, oh, I just know any minute now, like everyone's going to start paying attention to us. And frankly, you don't think it's ever going to happen. Like nobody's going to give a shit about what we're doing ever. And there's huge freedom in that because then you'll do whatever you feel like doing because it doesn't matter. (laughs) We were all in it together. It was a very small scene. You're going to be using the same guitars. Like you got a gig and like Paul Soldier's SG would be used in every band that played of the four bands, you know, that played that night and his amp, you know. So you're going to have similar sounds and influences and y'all rehearsing together. And that's the funnest thing. We didn't have a fucking beach to go to or volleyball to play, you know, this is what we did. Even what came to be regarded as the quintessential grunge look developed on account of the elements. The flannel thing and then the grunge thing and the, you know, the layered look, people think it's a fashion, but we were freezing. Like when you say garage band, (laughs) we're talking garage band. We played in the garages, right? No heat. And we're in the Northwest, man. It is freezing. And that's why you'd wear Doc Martin, I mean, because we're tromping around, you know, in the rain, in the studio, oh, backstage, or, you know, wherever we're going, it's always raining. Once enough actual clubs started cropping up in Seattle to support a local scene, the quickly growing batch of bands that had already been popping up around Seattle didn't need much of a push to start taking them over. 
So the bands would play, like one Wednesday, it would be Soundgarden on stage. And then the next Wednesday, it would be Alice in Chains on stage. And I'll be standing next to Soundgarden. And then the next week, it's Mother Love Bone. And then I'm standing next to, you know, the guys from Soundgarden. So we, we just, like, ended up building this entire community. See, the grunge movement is literally three to 500 people. But what blows my mind is the talent within the 300 to 500 people that we had in Seattle. Mind-blowing talent. I think the thing, though, that people are forgetting is that the shows that Soundgarden, Skinyard, that those bands that were the first volley, there were hardly any people at those shows. If there were 20 people at the early Soundgarden shows, I would have been surprised. It was generally the people who were in the opening band and there was almost always three bands. So you'd have 12 to 15 band members and five other people. That's the way the early shows were. Everyone thinks it was a huge deal when it started, and it really wasn't a huge deal until 1992. The clubs that hosted the burgeoning Seattle scene weren't just music venues. They functioned as a kind of spiritual center for the city's rock and roll underground. We played a lot at the Central. We played a lot at the Ditto. Uh, There's a place called the 5-0, the Off-Ramp. Um, oh, and Gorilla Gardens. The Central, the Vogue, uh, the OK Hotel. And then the off-ramp, the crocodile, rock candy, that was like, you know, 80s and 90s. I'd say the off-ramp, rock candy, the showbox. Uh, Squid Row, and then there was the Vogue in the Central Tavern. We would go to Rock Candy, we would go to the off-ramp, which is where, you know, Pearl Jam played their first show. And the Central, I mean, the Central would give anybody a show, and we love them to this day. The Central basically launched careers of, of many, many, many people. And the crocodile. We knew we had to play the off-ramp. We knew we had to play the OK Hotel. We knew we had to play Rock Candy. We knew we had to play uh, the Central. The Phoenix Underground in Pioneer Square. Some of my favorite clubs were the smaller all-ages clubs, like the Velvet Elvis. The end was a block away from Rock Candy. And I saw some insane shows at Rock Candy. Uh, the end was also a block away from Rebar, another really important bar in the scene. By the time Bruce Pavitt and Jonathan Poneman's fledgling label, Sub Pop, started really repping the Seattle scene by releasing Green River's Dry as a Bone EP and Soundgarden's Screaming Life EP in 1987, what we know today as the grunge scene was a fully formed phenomenon. In fact, Pavitt's promo hype of Dry as a Bone as ultra-loose grunge that destroyed the morals of a generation is considered the first use of the term. Bruce Pavitt, who started Sub Pop, had a column in The Rocket, which was a monthly Seattle magazine that focused on music, and it was called Sub Pop. In every edition of The Rocket, in his column, he would review indie rock, and he dedicated a lot of his column to local music. Most people in the area, at least those who were kind of into the music scene, knew that it had started as a fanzine and I think a collection of cassettes that Bruce Pavitt put together. And then it bloomed into a label and, and Jonathan Poneman got involved. It was said once of the Velvet Underground that only 100 people bought their album, but every single one of those 100 started bands. I think that to some degree that's true of the early Green River but once again, the part people miss is that Green River couldn't make a go of it as a band. You know, they, they couldn't succeed. They couldn't financially put it together. 
there just weren't that many people in Seattle that were going to shows. And uh, we talk about the Central Tavern or the Vogue Tavern where many of these bands played. They could only hold 200 people. So even if a band was successful, the upper limit was pretty damn small for everybody. You know, I think Green River with that record, that was a solid record. But I don't know that it had a huge influence outside of Seattle. I have no idea exactly how many copies the Green River record sold in the first year and a half. My guess is less than a thousand. We know Nirvana's first single, that didn't sell, you know, more than a few hundred. We're, we're talking about records that were hugely influential, but were not even big records within the alternative rock community outside of Seattle. With some help from Seattle Music Bible, The Rocket, and local radio, the early sub-pop releases eventually started to find their audience through an ideal combination of content and savvy packaging. Kathy Fennessy saw the impact not only at KCMU, but at her retail gig at Cellophane Square. Once the Mudhoney single came out, that's the point at which, you know, KCMU was playing a lot of those artists that followed in their wake. And then we definitely had more people coming in and asking about things. And the collectability factor was definitely an issue. Like, people would come in and they would want something on the color of vinyl that they knew it was initially available on, whether it was something on clear vinyl or brown, in the case of Mudhoney, things like that. Same as Soundgarden, I read about Screaming Life, so I went to Tower Records and made sure I got the orange vinyl. I would buy all the sub-pop singles when they showed up at local store in the U District called Cellophane Square and buy those as, as much as I could. The fun thing about them was they all kind of had the same aesthetic back then. Mudhoney and the Tad one came in clear plastic sleeves so you could see the vinyl through them, which was just kind of different. They're all fun things to buy and, of course, listen to. In the case of Sub Pop, what, what's a little different is, is the primary look and feel had everything to do with Charles Peterson being the photographer because he had a very specific look and feel and he was shooting all those bands. So I, I really thought that in terms of sort of marketing and image and, and branding and all of that stuff, you know, Sub Pop really was doing something that was well thought. When it came to Seattle record stores, though, Easy Street was and still is the ruler of the realm. More than just a store, it was a real hub of the scene. Around 89, I moved it down the street to where it still stands today in West Seattle in the West Seattle Junction. I uh, lived around the corner from guys like Stone Gossard. I would see McCready at Kaggers and we all had mutual friends. And, you know, I felt that it was my responsibility and, and my duty as a Seattle kid to support, collaborate and promote their new undertakings and they were friends so we all worked together so in the case of Soundgarden we had record release parties for every single record Alice in Chains same thing and there were some great shops in Seattle there were stores like Peaches and Cellophane Square and Fallout Records uh, Fallout is where Sub Pop essentially had their first office in the broom closet when Breaking Waves returns Mudhoney fires the first shot, and Seattle's musical revolution is underway. In August 1988, Sub Pop released Grunge's Clarion Call, Mudhoney's first single, Touch Me, I'm Sick. 
I knew the Green River had broken up and I knew that Mark Arm was in the new band, but I had never heard Mud Honey. But I heard that song and his voice was so recognizable. I was like, this is the Mud Honey song that I've heard about and it was amazing. It was just this raw bolt of energy and I hadn't heard anything like that up to that point in time. To me, that was just a Seattle anthem and still, to me, represents the Seattle music scene. Mud Honey was not just the biggest thing in Seattle at the time. They were the biggest thing in the indie scene in the U.S. That was a, an amazing and great single. It was basically a match being thrown on kerosene. That's probably the single that best embodies that thing that people talk about when they say the word grunge. Touch me, I'm sick. How killer is that? Touch me, I'm sick. The sub-pop way of doing things, from their curation to their marketing coups, had a maverick vibe that attracted attention and provoked a reaction, even if it wasn't always a positive one. They, to me, were the unlabeled label. Tell me I can't do it and I'll find a way that I can. Their love for the artists that they represented is undeniable. Their marketing reflected the unique personality of each band and a little bit of just snark, sarcastic fun thrown in for a good mix where you couldn't help but want to be part of it. They definitely were pretty canny, pretty savvy with how they dealt with the press, you know, considering it was kind of a shoestring operation to begin with. And there were some serious money problems even early on that not everybody knows about. They were really good at putting up a good front. I mean, if you think about their album covers and posters and their, their whole graphic look of Sub Pop, they gave the impression that we're well-funded and we're hiring excellent designers and, and whatnot. And they were, but there were a lot of really serious money issues. There was always such a weird vibe to me about Sub Pop. A lot of not cool shit went down. Like, not actually bro or buddy. If you talk to real, like, insider people, I'm not sure everybody got paid fairly. I'm not sure some of those bands ever saw any money. I think there was icky, sometimes backstabbing, as empires do when they're getting built, like, on a fast trajectory. There was just also kind of this snarky, I'm a loser, cool, like, just a way of being that wasn't my thing. You know, one thing Sub Pop's always also done really well is to write the Seattle music history as the Sub Pop music history, which for a lot of people, you know, myself included at times, has, has felt kind of irksome. It's like, dude, there was many other labels and many other bands that didn't come out on Sub Pop. But what they were doing and very successfully did, uh, they created a brand that was synonymous with, with the Seattle rock scene. They went about it in an amazing way. You know, and, and there's no doubt that Sub Pop was very instrumental in creating the perception of what that scene was and its relevance around the world. They definitely were very aware of how to get success. The irony, though, that people don't realize is that Nirvana wanted to leave Sub Pop pretty early on because no one was getting paid. And absolutely, Sub Pop would not exist today, wouldn't have existed through the middle of 1990 if they hadn't signed a contract with Nirvana. That's the only thing that kept Sub Pop alive. But they were close to filing for bankruptcy in 1990. We did a cover story in the Rocket, I think, called Subplop. And I, I actually think the date of that might be April 1991. But they spent some smart money on the right promotion, bringing a few English journalists in. And those stories really made an impact. And suddenly Seattle was everywhere. In 1989, Sub Pop hatched a scheme to take their bands worldwide by bringing Everett True from British music paper Melody Maker to town to write a piece about the scene. 
His March 1989 double-page spread was a fascinating snapshot of the scene at that moment, singling out Mudhoney as the standard bearers and giving equal real estate to Green River, Blood Circus, Tad, Nirvana, Girl Trouble, Swallow, The Fluid, Thrown Ups, and The Walkabouts, relegating Soundgarden and Screaming Trees to a best-of-the-rest section. Melody Maker uh, with Everett True writing this whole thing about the Seattle scene. It was explosive. That particular piece of press changed everything. I, I was working at Sub Pop at the time, and I remember they kind of made a big gamble on that because they brought Everett True over from the UK. They flew him over. They put him up. You know, they, they set up a lot of shows during the time he was going to be there to give the impression that, oh, my God, this scene is amazing. They actually did engineer some of that. But again, that was it was kind of brilliant that they did that. You know, the number of shows that happened while he was there was probably threefold what it would be otherwise in a normal month. But they took a big gamble, they spent a lot of money, and it completely paid off. So I think, I think that's where the whole thing began, was that Melody Maker piece. And then the doors just kind of blew open from there. What, of course, happened is that people in England, the music papers began writing about some of the Seattle bands as they toured. And that increased the megaphone significantly. But once they made it to UK radio, in a way, I would argue that John Peel had more to do with uh, spreading the word on these bands because John Peel came with this kind of pedigree that when he embraced these bands, that gave them a, a level of credibility that Seattle hadn't had outside our area. The next couple of years before the scene's explosion into the mainstream were a kind of golden age, with an enormous amount of energy, invention, and activity pouring out of Seattle. And even though Nirvana started gaining ground pretty quickly, Mudhoney were still the kings of the hill. Mudhoney was the biggest indie record monsters at the time. I remember going to a Mudhoney show in San Diego and thinking, there's no way you're getting out of here without an injury. This is one of the most amazing pits I've ever seen in my life. They were fucking insane. It was insanity. It was, it was the Stooges reincarnated. It was pure punk rock chaos, and it was brilliant. There was the lame fest at the Moore Theater, and I can remember Mark Arm running back and forth on stage with his Fender Mustang and his hair flying back behind him and just kind of going nuts. Mark Arm formed like... A Seattle version of the Stooges, which is what I, you know, to me, Mud Honey was. And I thought, how killer is that that we got? We, you know, I still think that Seattle. We have like this killer fucking bare chested rock band in Seattle. Everybody in England, everybody in Seattle, everybody everywhere thought Mud Honey was the band that was going to break. And Sub Pop thought that. Uh, all their promotion and attention really was to Mud Honey. Some of the other bands on Sub Pop felt like an immense anger that Mudhoney was getting so much attention. But while Mudhoney was walking the walk, Nirvana was closing the gap. And with Louder Than Love, Soundgarden was busy defining the sound that would eventually make them multi-platinum monsters. Soundgarden guitarist Kim Thiel. It was the last album we made that consisted of songs that had been introduced to our audience live. Songs that we were able to develop and address over a series of shows over time. I mean, there are a lot of songs on Loud and Love that had existed for a few years prior to their being released on Loud and Love. And the fact that it was a major label record meant 
we were given a huger budget, which meant we could spend more time, which because it was our first major label record, that's not necessarily a good thing. Um, I was one of the first people to ever hear Nirvana. Jack had just recorded Nirvana for that first demo, most of which became Incesticide years later. He came into Skinyard practice and he was like all excited saying, dude, you got to hear this band that I just recorded. We just recorded like almost a whole album's worth of material, like recorded and mixed in just like two or three days. You got to hear it. So we literally sat down and listened to the tape before we even started the Skinyard practice. And all of us were just kind of like, what? Holy shit. And it was to me, to all of us, it was just so immediate and so obvious. But for all their sonic fury, Nirvana hadn't yet learned to focus their power. And in their early days, they could be an erratic live band. Unpredictable is the first word that comes to mind because they were like kids in a candy store when they were in their element. You never knew what to expect, whether it was, you know, Chris is going to break his bass on stage or Kurt's going to run into the... I mean, you you never knew what was going to happen when they were on stage and off. Nirvana are not the best band in Seattle until 1990. And then one day, almost out of the blue, my argument is it's, it's when Kurt's songwriting kind of shifted in focus. Released in June of 1989, Nirvana's debut album, Bleach, was produced by Skinyard guitarist Jack Andino, who'd already overseen Mudhoney's early output. It was the first time the world at large got a good look under the hood at what made Nirvana run. When Bleach first came out, I totally saw in them their melodic, powerful lead singer with guitar riffs that are informed by classic rock and heavy metal as much as they are by punk rock within a stripped-down, minimal context. Bleach, to me, had some of those same elements that Mudhoney had. I think for me, they weren't just a band that was about chaos and, and, you know, punk rock ideals. They were a band that also had pop sensibilities. I mean, I was at Sub Pop at the time when Bleach came out. You know, I pushed the shit out of that record. I I probably sold the first 50,000 myself between selling to distributors and selling directly to, you know, 250, 300 different retail accounts all across America. You know, I was a big proponent. I thought it was an amazing record and still do today. Bleach was one of my favorite records. Um, Just because I think it's funny that, you know, 20 some odd year old guys singing about the fact that he can't go out and play in, in a recess. I think that's funny. You know, I mean, you remember your teacher took away recess if you were bad in school and you're like, fuck. You know, and here's this guy singing No Recess, you know, wouldn't you believe it's just my luck. I think that's fucking brilliant. And that's all the lyrics, you know, but he could make that song spectacular. By November 1990, even the New York Times was starting to smell something cooking in Seattle. David Brown wrote a piece about the first big batch of major label releases from the scene, including the glowering, grungy psychedelia of the Screaming Trees' Something About Today EP the widescreen power pop of the Posies' Dear 23, the dark metallic grind of Alice in Chains' debut LP Facelift, and Mother Love Bone's Apple, which was already a posthumous statement. Soundgarden, who had gotten out ahead of the pack with their 1989 major label debut for A&M, Louder Than Love, got a mention too, noting their nomination for a Hard Rock Grammy for Ultra Mega OK. They lost. Accolades aside, none of those records gained a ton of commercial traction, Facelift fared the best, 
and only reached number 42 on the album charts. And of course, Apple was doomed from the start due to its circumstances. Nobody from Seattle had yet captured the rock star crown that Mother Lovebone had seemed destined for. But amid that band's wreckage and regret, something big was getting ready to rise from the ashes. You've been listening to Breaking Waves, Seattle. Next, on Breaking Waves, the sound that changed everything, Seattle becomes the center of the musical universe. Breaking Waves was produced for Odyssey by Osiris Media. For Odyssey, the executive producers of Breaking Waves are Tim Murphy and Corey Podolsky. The creative directors are Dave Richards, Leslie Scott, and Ryan Castle. For Osiris Media, the executive producers are RJB, Kirsten Cluthy, and Brad Stratton. The show was produced by Brian Brinkman and written by Jim Allen. Edit and mix by Brad Stratton and narration by Ryan Castle. To find more great content like Breaking Waves Seattle, please download the Odyssey app on your mobile device or visit Odyssey. That's A-U-D-A-C-Y dot com. Breaking Waves.